Hi everyone, this is your host Ramakrishna from Usha Investment Group LLC. Welcome back to Multifamily AP360, the show where we discuss 360 degrees views on mindset, passive and active multifamily investing. For those who are looking for tips, strategies, best and challenging experiences. Also, I request you to share it with those who might benefit and leave a rating and review. Today's our guest is Corina Ufinger from Brio Properties. Welcome, Corina. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Sure. Uh, a little bit about Corina. Uh, Corina is a multi-generational real estate investor. Her passion for real estate comes from seeing the positive impact it had on her parents and grandparents despite its challenges. As a child, Corina often worked at the hands of parents, getting hands-on experience in rental repairs and management. She also took advantage of attending many of the same courses and conferences her parents did, getting head start in her former real estate education. So, so with that, Corina, uh, you want to add anything to your background? Yeah, I've just been really passionate about real estate my entire life from everything that I've seen about how it's, what it's done for my, well, what it did for my grandparents when they were still alive and what it's done for my parents now and given them, even though they're not in it anymore, they've sold a lot of their properties. I'm just passionate about it because of all of the freedom that it gave them, both of them, both my grandparents and my parents in their later life. And I see how it's such an opportunity for many people to break free from the rat race and make a life that they truly can enjoy and be proud of, which when you only have one life, that's what it's all about. Yeah, great. So what exactly you learned from your grandparents or parents about real estate? The first thing I learned from my uh, grandparents, actually, so my grandpa, one of the first things he taught me was it's really important that if you truly want to grow your portfolio, you need to understand there's a time when you need to let go and let somebody else manage the day to day so that you can have your vision on the larger portion of it. And that's a really key part because people get too bogged down in self-managing their property sometimes with only like four units that they don't have the time to expand. So doing something like outsourcing repairs or hiring a property manager can be a fantastic thing to help move your portfolio forward. And that's what I, and that's, a, and that's a lesson that I learned myself. Yeah, got it. So tell me like how exactly you started real estate, what kind of projects you handled earlier and what kind of projects you're handling now? I just finished a $12,000 remodel on an apartment that uh, I have with with my partner, who's my brother. And we did all new kitchen countertops in there. We did all new, all uh, actually all new bathrooms. Both bathrooms are fully remodeled, brand new LVP throughout. It's been really good for us to focus on the interior because up until now with what we've owned, we focused basically on getting the capital expenditures up. So we worked on replacing roofs, water heaters, and those are great things to improve, but really from the tenant perspective, it means more to them when you put money into the units. So that's why we started to shift our goals a little bit and put more money into the actual units rather than putting them all on the, I guess, the common elements or some of the unforeseen things that tenants don't think about. But don't get me wrong, because the tenants still would really appreciate like a uh, efficient furnace, something like that, something that reduces their power bill. You know, they really like things like that. But then there's a lot of the other stuff that we kind of get caught up in sometimes as real estate investors that we don't necessarily pay attention to the interior, which is what our tenants really care about. And as I've noticed renting out some of our properties for other owners is when they put the money into the interiors, 
they do see a return on their investment, meaning that their rates can go up. It's hard, even in a market like today, where we have a lot of sort of like it's a Hunger Games match for renters, you know, like they're all trying to rent the same place. And reality of it is that even in this kind of market, if you have an out of date interior, it's harder to rent your unit at full market rate. A very good example is I have a colleague who just purchased a single family home in the outskirts of Madison, Wisconsin. And I told her she really should put some money into the kitchen because she had vintage wallpaper on the kitchen. Now vintage is being nice. It wasn't necessarily like vintage appealing. It was, it was weird wallpaper from the sixties where it was like a little bit of felt to it. And it was kind of multi-patterned and she had really out of date kitchen area and the bathrooms were not only out of date, but they needed some regrouting and things like that because this was like subway tile back when the place was built. And she didn't quite put that much money into those elements. And as a result of it, she wasn't able to rent it for top dollar on the rental market. So it's really important to pay attention to the interiors. And that's why now, not only with my properties, but with some of my other clients' properties, I'm getting them to focus on the interiors because as our market is increasingly competitive for us in the sense of we have a lot of corporate entities coming in buying properties, it's going to be more important for us to have our interiors up to date and looking really attractive to prospective renters. Got it. And thanks for sharing that. So how exactly that inflation or labor costs are impacting renovation budgets or renovation timelines? Oh my gosh, it's it's incredible the impact that some of that has had on doing renovations or even doing standard repairs. Like for instance, I just had to replace a bath fan in one of my own rentals. And, you know, like three years ago, that bath fan would have cost like maybe $35, but it costs $65 now. And then of course, there's this element of when you're doing large scale renovations, you have to be booking out contractors very far in advance. And that's making it difficult sometimes for flippers and people that are doing the burr strategy because their contractors might be further out than what their seller, the person they're buying the property from is waiting, is willing to wait till they close. There's this like large gap. So you might be closing on something on May 30th, but your contractor might not be available until June, June 30th. And that's causing a lot of craziness within the market where there's a lot of people that maybe want to get into burrs or flips and they can't because they can't like bridge that gap. They have this 30 days where the property's sitting there doing nothing, not collecting income, and it's also not being worked on. So this world that we're in right now between just the increased costs of supplies and then the increased demand on contractors where we're not only the main contributor to these contractors' success, like previously to COVID, contractors loved working with us because we as investors and property managers gave them their consistent income. We gave them their bread and butter the single family home, primary homeowners, they were sort of like the icing on the cake. But now with how much money people have been putting into their own homes, we find ourselves competing for time with contractors as well. And that's put an extreme pressure on those of us in this industry that are into doing like large scale rehabs right now. Yeah, got it. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. So that is the challenge we're all facing right now. So uh, you're managing properties and also you're owning own properties. So how exactly are you now managing those properties? So really, as far as managing any of my properties, whether they be mine or somebody else's, there's a couple of key things to doing it. And number one is communication. So communication with our tenants is priority. 
one of the rookie mistakes that I see a lot of people making is not communicating effectively enough and in a timely fashion with their tenants. Now, effectively enough means that you are getting a point, you know, you're getting your point across to them in a manner that they're understanding and you aren't necessarily holding things back from the conversation. One of the best examples of this is making sure you're completely transparent with the status of repairs. So if you have a situation where perhaps a tenant is having a leaky roof, and maybe right now, at least for us here in the North, a lot of our roofers are still down South doing work. We're being open and honest with them and letting them know that, hey, we're working on getting a roofer there as soon as we can. But all the roofers that we still use or typically use, they're still down in the South doing projects where they don't have as much winter as we do. So we have, you know, we're talking with some of them. We're going to get one of them is going to be back, you know, in a week or so. And it's just about being open and honest with the communication. When you tend to hide things from them, like maybe you're embarrassed by the fact that you can't find a roofer or things like that, that's when communication tends to get derailed. So we truly believe in not necessarily full transparency, but a very large discretion of transparency that creates a very honest relationship between us and the tenants. And then obviously with our clients or the property owners, I hear it all the time from other property owners when they go and have their properties managed by other people. They talk about a lack of communication about how it can take the property management company 72, 96 hours to even acknowledge like an email or a phone call from them. And this goes with tenants as well, that when we get an email or or phone call from a tenant, we strive to acknowledge that phone call within 24 business hours. And usually it's honestly less than 12 business hours because we want to be sure that they know that we got their communication and that now we're working on bringing a result or what they need by doing X, Y, Z. And we kind of lay that out for them. And that's important on both sides of the equation, the tenant and the property owner. The other part about managing properties, whether it be your own or somebody else's, is understanding that the biggest reason that tenants move comes down to maintenance. Tenants always tend to move based on either maintenance being done very shoddily, so very cheaply, they tend to, they they definitely tend to move if they're if things aren't repaired timely enough. Now, obviously, we're going to have different timelines than what a lot of our tenants are. Like there are some tenants who like things fixed the same day. Obviously, that's not realistic. But for most cases, a realistic expectation for turnaround on a repair would be about seventy two hours. But it's when we get beyond like the four, the five day period that tenants start to get upset and then they consider moving because it takes so long for things to get repaired. And when it does, it's cheaply repaired. But then what's interesting is that in the state of Wisconsin, the number one reason that people move, it is tied into maintenance, but it more in regards to the fact that their landlord fails to give notice. Now, in most states, I think almost every state, you have to give notice of when you're going to enter a unit. And at least here in Wisconsin, we have this issue where landlords are getting a request from a tenant where they say they have a broken faucet and sometimes they're not acknowledging it or they are they are acknowledging, but then they're not telling the tenant when they're going to come. And then the landlord just kind of randomly shows up or the property manager does someday to repair it. And it really kind of puts the tenant at inconvenience because either they weren't expecting you or they're not home and maybe they're not going to enter. So I think it's really important that we're establishing clear communication with maintenance in regards to when it's going to be fixed, when someone's going to be there. And then if, if it's okay for you or your contractor to enter without the tenant being present. And really that's the bulk of what it means to manage properties for other people. It's having open and honest communication not only about those things, but also about rent. One of the big things that 
we really truly try to do is build relationships with the tenants where they feel okay coming to us when they have an issue paying rent. We don't want to be the be the property manager who's just chasing tenants because they owe rent. You want to be the property manager that has an open and honest dialogue with them. So when something does go wrong, they'll open up to you and then you have a higher success of actually resolving the issue and getting rent back collected to you. I think there are uh, some you shared some of solid points. Thank you very much. And uh, as a owner, so what what is your business plan and uh, how long you want to hold your properties? So, I mean, the ultimate business plan, my personal goal is I would like to have about 36 units that I own personally. Uh, I feel like they're probably going to be, the majority of them will be small multifamily. Uh, maybe down the road, I might see myself purchasing like a 12 or 16 unit. But so far, I'm really loving the strategy of having duplexes and quads. So right now I have two duplexes and I have two quads. And my rather famous story that I tell people is that I only got the duplexes because they had to come with the quads. See, these were part of two uh, seller financing deals and the sellers would only sell them to us if they could also sell their duplex as well as the quad. So I'm kind of like, well, I didn't really want duplexes, but I guess if it means I get the quad, then I'll take them as well. I've just always preferred more doors per capital expenditure. So if I have the opportunity to get four doors to pay for a roof, then that's what I'm going to do. But really my ultimate goal is 36 units and it'll be a combination of small multifamily with maybe one medium multifamily, but it's not really medium because 16 units technically beneath that. But I mean, my ultimate goal is to have 36 units that I manage so that when I have like property management and maybe property management isn't doing so well, like maybe there's this recession where a lot of people are offloading their properties, then I still have my own income stream of owning properties that helps that helps pay my bills. And then I obviously would still have realty and other things. So for me, it's about having an avenue of passive income that I know is always going to be there until the day I sell the properties. So why only 36 units? Is there any reason behind it? <laughs> you know, I, I wish I had this grand reasoning that I could like say I did calculations and I come up with this number because I think it's, I think it's a book that either Robert Kiyosaki or one of his other uh, authors in the Rich Rich Dad series says, you know, to figure out how many numbers you need to own to have passive income. But I don't have any story like that. I just saw the number 36 in a magazine one day thumbing through the pages in a doctor's office. And I'm like, that's the number of units I want to own. And that's legit the story behind that goal. Okay, got it. Got it. So would you share any of your you know, best experiences so far on real estate space? Mm-hmm. My best experience as a real estate investor, boy. I'd have to say probably for me personally, that my my best story about being a real estate investor is just how I've been able to help other people see the potential in real estate investing and how I've had people come to me from other property management companies and feel such a sense of relief that not all property managers are out there to fill their own pockets first and then the landlord second. And just this idea of helping people get into real estate investing that maybe didn't think it was possible. Right now I'm working with a realty client he lives in Washington state, which is one of the hardest property or one of the hardest states to actually own property and not just price point wise, but the way some of the, the uh, legislation has changed in that state in the past couple of years. 
So he was interested in getting involved in real estate. And then he heard about markets in Wisconsin, but he just didn't really necessarily see himself being an out-of-state investor and having it work out. But being able to guide him through this process, he's actually closing on a duplex in Kenosha with me as his realtor, and I'll become his property manager after that. But having, but giving that person the availability to be able to invest in some place that isn't in their own state is such an amazing thing for me because otherwise I feel like this person would have walked away from real estate investing because just the idea of investing in his own state was so difficult. So to be able to bridge that gap for people and bring them into real estate investing where it can truly change their lives. I'm just looking forward to where this guy goes in the next, you know, five, seven years. And our goal is to get him to the point that within that five to seven years, he can go part-time with his current job or maybe just not work at all. And for me, those are my favorite experiences is when I'm helping people achieve their goals in real estate, or I create, or, or I come into a situation where I help them see a solution and they don't necessarily have to get out. Great. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, would you also share any of your challenging real estate investing experience so far? Yeah, I've definitely had a few challenging experiences. Um, I have this running joke and it's kind of a joke, but in a way I'm kind of scared by this. I tend to be, I've kind of labeled myself as the grim reaper of tenants because for whatever reason, in my eight-year career as a property manager and now my approximately six-year six career as an investor myself, I've had five tenants die. And that's a high amount because as I talk to people, like a lot of people go through their careers without having anyone die in one of their units. And suddenly I'm at the number five. But I think really the most challenging part is, you know, when I've had a tenant pass away, you have to walk this fine line, whether you're the landlord or the property manager, you are dealing with people that are mourning, they're in, in grief for the loss of someone. And we have to remind ourselves that, yes, this is a business, but at the same time, these people are dealing with picking up the pieces of something that was suddenly shattered. I like to kind of give the example of, it's like a vase was dropped into a million pieces and these family members or loved ones are coming in to clean up the apartment, say goodbye in their own way. And as much as we'd like for you know people to be in and out of the apartment in a day and get it rented the next day, one thing I had to learn was understanding that this is this is a mourning process for them. When I when I was managing about five years ago, I had a single mother who was actually my age, and she had a ten year old son. She died in a drunk driving accident. And that was very jarring for me because obviously she was my age and I considered her not really a friend, but I definitely knew her well. And of course I felt bad for her son, but those are the days where you kind of just got to pull, pull yourself up and say, okay, well, this is, this is my business. This is what I'm in. And right now the best thing I can do for her mother and for her sister is to be there to support them how I can in this capacity. So what I decided was that I was going to give them uh, the full two and a half weeks that were left in the month to clean up the unit. I wasn't going to push them out. I wasn't going to do anything like that. And even though the tenant hadn't paid rent yet, I said, you know what, that's fine. I'm not looking for any money in this. You guys just need to do what you need to do, make your amends, say goodbye, clear out the apartment, but take your time. This is obviously a loss you didn't plan on. And then at the end of the day, I went to the landlord that I was managing the property for. And I said, 
I know realistically you'd like to keep the money because she didn't pay her rent on time and she didn't pay before she passed away. But I think the best thing to do now is to send her security deposit to, there was a fund that was set up for her son. And I said, the best thing to do is to send that fund the money for her security deposit. I said, it's not what you want to do, but sometimes we have to do what's morally right. And in that instance, that was morally right. So I think one of the hardest things I've had to do is deal with tenant deaths. And I've even had my own uncle die in one of my units, which was a very weird position to be in where I'm the landlord, but then I'm also the niece who's who's grieving and I and I have to switch hats back and forth all the time in that situation. But I think tenant deaths are probably probably the hardest situations because there's a lot of emotions tied up in them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks for sharing that. And what is your current focus? Share something you're excited about now, Corina. Uh, right now, like, so, you know, I began this year saying I want to focus on buying properties for myself. Like I had this really grand intention of doing that. And I have done that, but just like everyone else in this market, I'm finding it difficult to close on properties to get offers accepted and to find viable properties that aren't snatched up right away. So while I'm still looking for properties for myself, I feel like right now I'm transitioning more into being a realtor for other people, helping them find properties. And I'm still looking out for myself because I still have the ultimate goal of getting six units this year myself, trying to bring my portfolio up to 18 units. But it's a really tough market, you know, and sometimes when I'm wearing so many different hats as a realtor, a property manager, and an investor, I have to realize that sometimes it's a little bit different for me. I'm I'm not someone who's devoting 24 seven to buying new properties because I'm wearing so many different hats. So I feel like right now I'm keeping my eyes open for properties I want to buy. I still haven't given up hope for this year. I mean, it's only, it's only April. So there's still basically six more months where I can acquire properties for myself. But right now I'm just focusing on being a realtor and then being a property manager for other people. But then also, you know, I still have massive goals with our own portfolio that we bought. We bought this portfolio when it was, uh, I guess you would say there was a lot of deferred maintenance. I wouldn't quite say they were derelict. It's not like they were in danger of being torn down, but we're focusing a lot more, especially now that the cash flow is good on getting those places up to par. So I talked about the $12,000 that we dropped on one unit to, to remodel them. So what we're doing now is we're focusing on these interiors and we're focusing on making bigger upgrades to these places. Got it. Got it. Uh, any books that impacted your life and what way? Oh, wow. You know, I'm a really avid reader. Actually, one of my things that I love is I have this a personal book club with my dad. And on every Friday we get together for about three hours and we discuss a book that we're reading and they're like 50% real estate, 50% entrepreneurship. One of my favorite real estate books that I love to recommend is the millionaire real estate investor by Gary Keller. Uh, He writes amazing, amazing books, but What I love about this one is it was such a good summation of what you need to become a top tier real estate investor. And it wasn't just Gary's opinion. He actually did a study and I think he studied like a hundred, a hundred different successful real estate investors. And he had a criteria for what they had to be, what they had to own, what their net worth was. 
And he went and he interviewed all these people. He observed them working and he compiled it into this amazing book where it gives you basically a blueprint of how to become a millionaire real estate investor. And it was so interesting that he thought he was going to find like five or six different strategies that were common amongst them for success. But really, he only came back with one strategy in common for all of them because they all had the same process that they followed to get where they are today. So I think that's one of my top recommended books that are real estate specific. The other one that I really enjoy, um, Gary Keller has another one called uh, The One Thing, which is a really good book about focusing on one thing and not, not necessarily believing in multitasking and how, you know, we can only devote so much brain power to little segments of things. And it's better if we're focusing on one thing at a time for a certain period of time. So that's a really good productivity book, but really when it comes down to it, I think the, the one that sort of propelled me into the direction I've gone now would be the cash flow quadrant by uh, Robert Kiyosaki. I think that would be probably the one that started it all for me. Awesome. Thank you. And how are you giving back to community, Corina? One of my passions is I am actively involved in the uh, local Citizens Police Academy here in the city that I live in. So I do a lot of work to support the police officers. Uh, We've done things where we host fundraisers, but we've also taken just warm meals over to them on the holidays. Um, I do a lot of work with the police department, and I'm also very active in the cancer community because as a survivor of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, the idea of having people in their 20s and 30s uh, being diagnosed with cancer and being thrown this large curveball that most of us don't think is going to come until we're in our 40s or 50s is something I'm very passionate about having been been in their shoes. So I devote a lot of time to helping uh, younger cancer patients kind of not only come through their chemotherapy and radiation, but then also on the flip side of it, how they kind of readjust to being a brand new person, because when you go through something like that, you go into a a different person than you are when you come out. And for a lot of people, they struggle to figure out where to go in life after they've had a major, major episode, like a cancer diagnosis and treatment. So having been there myself, I really enjoy helping people find their paths outside of cancer and life after cancer. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, How can listeners can connect with you, Corina? Uh, honestly, probably one of the best ways to connect with me is over on Instagram uh, at Landlord Check. Um, that's my profile over on Instagram. Then you can find me on Bigger Pockets. If, if anyone's on Bigger Pockets, you can find me by my name, Karina Ufinger. And then uh, I'd say, you know, I have a Facebook page. Um, there's a Facebook page for Bureau Properties. There's a Facebook page for me as a realtor. So there's plenty of ways to get a hold of me if you'd like to. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Karina. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time. Sure. Thanks for listening to Multifamily AP360. Check out the show notes and grab the freebie on our website, ushacapital.com. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, share it with those who might benefit and leave a rating and review. Follow me on my social media. Thanks for tuning in and I'll see you next time.